Greetings, good people. Welcome to Who Knows Is Just Life, the podcast. I'm your host, Kyle. Thank you for fitting me into your day today. Today's episode will largely be a tribute to Harry Belafonte. I read his autobiography a few years ago, and it hit me very, very heavily. Very, like his his history of what he was able to do and see uh, and be involved in was just you know eye opening for me. And I know we lost him on April 23rd, so I just want to you know shout out him and his and his career, his life, his legacy, and uh, give him pay some homage to him as he transitions uh, to join the ancestors. I also have quite a few updates that I think might be might be fun to share. So I'll start with that. So my kids' spring break just passed. I know a lot of folks were, were having spring break. Anybody with school-aged children. Uh, his, his spring break was a little bit later than others, but uh, still had a great time. Had him for the whole week. And we were able to visit my brother's farm in Georgia. So my brother lives on a farm with his colleague, Tony, who basically does most of the farming. My brother's there also has like a, that's, that's like his home base. He does like a lot of the business operations and stuff like that um, from there. But um, it's in Maysville, Georgia. It's about an hour northeast of Atlanta. The closest big town is Athens where UGA is. And they have a pretty good size land, pretty good size plot of land. It's, it's, it's in a neighborhood though. So it's not, if you think farm, you think massive, 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 you know, hills and whatever. Um, it's, more of like a, a farm with like a residence on it. And the way they have it set up is they have, have a pretty big house that was originally there. It's been there for, I don't know, probably a hundred years or more. And they have that, they did a lot of rehab work to make sure to, to set that up to be an Airbnb experience house. And so that's where I was staying. So, so me, the kiddo, my uncle came up there. Um, my mom and her husband were there too. So we were all staying in, in the house, in the Airbnb house. And then my brother and his colleague, Tony, they live in a separate house that they built you know, from scratch. And it's got two separate apartments in, in that house. And um, so Tony does the farming. My brother does more like business stuff. And he just, he kind of just works, works from, from there. Um, so yeah, it was, it was just really dope to, to get down there and see it. I'm the last of my immediate family to get down there. So I, I definitely was happy to be able to make the trip. Um, drove down there, spent the night in Charlotte on the way to cut down the trip. It's about 10 hours away, nine, 10 hours away, something like that. So a um, bit of a journey, but it was, it was great. Um, having the kiddo run around and just be amongst, you know, all the chicks, so they have like 50 chickens and I don't know, maybe like four or five roosters or something like that. And it's just a blast to see just just to see the chickens themselves is really a trip um and then to see the kiddo like playing with them and, and he fed them at least once while we were there he also got a chance to plant some potatoes which is really cool i i've <laughs> i've had potatoes sit in the house too long and they start to go you know even though they start to go bad quote unquote like you're not going to eat them but you like they start to grow roots off of a, a living potato and so i knew that they were pretty viable and pretty um you know, easy to grow, or at least they, they, they start to germinate pretty quickly or start to regrow pretty quickly. And so literally the planting of potatoes was literally putting pieces of potato in, in the ground, which I thought was pretty cool. Um, so the kiddo got, got a chance to do that and water him and all that kind of stuff. Um, but then he, he got to play with uh, my mom a bit, which was great. He had a whole day. I, I was working remotely from there. So um, it was great to have a, a lot of folks to pitch in and help make sure he was engaged and active and whatnot. So um, it was a blast. I went for like a two mile run and I was dead. Like my, my lungs were just not ready for like whatever pollen I got down there is different than what we got here. Let me tell you, like, it is just another thing down there. I I don't know what it was, but anyway, so that was an experience. Um, it, so it was, it was, it was overall it was a great experience. I, it was also cool to just be in a non Atlanta part of Georgia. I had never really been in Georgia other than Atlanta. So one thing I'll I'll, I'll mention I, I know there's um, a lot of writings and and commentary out there about just the drive south when so I you know we were on 95 for a bit and then in Virginia you take 85 and 85 just takes you all the way down so you notice there's like really tall flag posts with the Confederate flag on them and I remember learning somewhere I should try to dig up where I found this out but basically those flags are not against the law to raise. Obviously we've seen them plenty of times, but it's also not um, possible for them to really do anything about it. Even though it's over a state highway. Um, technically the, the flags are on private property. So there's no jurisdiction, 
you know, to t- have them taken down or anything like that. So I, I noticed them and I thought it was really interesting that that was part of the experience getting down, you know, down, down south. Anybody driving down south will see it along many of the major highways, but in particular going down to this part of Georgia, that was definitely a thing. Um, it's also really interesting to just see how the di- demographics shift a little bit. Um, my brother was telling us how there's this huge new battery factory that's South Korean owned, and there are a lot of of Asian folks. We saw we saw folks coming in and out of the workday um, over the course of our being there, and you know that's a huge, huge. Uh, I think it was like five thousand jobs or something crazy like that. That's there making batteries for I think for for cars if I'm not mistaken. And um, or and for other things, but um, that's like a huge boon to the economy locally. But also, it brought in a whole bunch of, of of South Koreans and other Asians in the area, which which is interesting. And for me, I mean, when I think of the South, I don't think of Asians. I think of you know white, black, and Latino in certain areas, certain parts. You know, like obviously Florida, Texas, places like that. But in Georgia, I would I, I you know I would just think white white and black for the most part. So yeah, I don't know how that's actually playing out and how that might impact things um in that in that kind of small rural town another thing that i did was uh, with my uncle we, we were trying to find a couple hikes to do and we went kind of towards the gainesville area and you know did a like a little hike walk or whatever and it kind of brought you into downtown gainesville and it kind of ended right at the gainesville library so we were like all right let's check out the library see what it looks like you know and it was just interesting we went to like the new books and um it was a book about Obama, I think, and and there were a lot of like history books, like the Civil War stuff. Um, it was just, it was just interesting. The, the selection seemed a little bit, I guess, sparse, sporadic, um, and it definitely just seemed like not as, I don't know, not as not as uh, reflective of the community. Because by the way, to Gainesville, at least from what we saw on, on the hike, like there's plenty of black people. Like it's, it's we definitely we out there. I mean you know, which shouldn't be a surprise. So it's just, it just sucks that like they don't have access to the same kind of materials uh, that, that we do in our libraries here. And um, so, yeah, I don't know. I, I, that, that kind of stuck out to me as well. Yeah. So one, th- one interesting thing was that we were driving, I think just to the grocery store or something. And imagine like a small town where you got a neighborhood with some houses, you got one main road and the main road takes you to a couple other towns that are like, it kind of feel close together cause they're not far apart, but they're technically different towns. So Commerce, Georgia is a little bit further down. Um, it's technically separate from Maysville. And, but, and then the, like the road basically parallels the uh, railroad tracks. And sometimes you're on the left side, sometimes you're on the right side, depending on, you know, how the road is situated. Um, and, just at like I think it was like at a gas station or something. A guy was just standing there, holding a sign that said "Pride is social destruction." And I was just like, "Wow!" Like this guy is just gonna stand there. And he's an older white dude, you know, stand there with a sign that says this. And it's like you're in the middle of like Georgia. I was just like, "Are you? Are you? Are you?" Are you obtaining your objective in this case? And what I thought was interesting was that pride was colored in like with the rainbow colors. I'm like, the dude took the time to like actually color in <laughs> like rainbow colors in the pride. But then to say it's like social distress. I was just like, man, the effort that, that, that we're going through to like hate is just mind boggling to me. So that was definitely kind of troubling to see or just, I don't know. I guess that's part of, being down there, you see certain things like that. Um, and then, like, it was interesting to just see, like, little hints of Trump. I mean, <laughs> we filled up the car with gas, and the the metal flap that falls down when you take out the pump from the from the uh, the main the main pump holder, it had, like, a Trump sticker on it. And I'm like, what's the objective of this? Is it to, like, advertise Trump when you're putting the, the nozzle back into the thing? Or is it because they don't like Trump and they want to have him be, I, I'm, I was just, it was just weird. This <laughs> is like a bunch of like weird uh, things like that, that I didn't know how to place. But ultimately though, and from my brother's experience, like there's just a lot of decent folk that just kind of just do, go about their lives. They're, they're just kind of like, you know, living and doing things. I know when my brother, hopefully I'll get him on the show, but when I know when my brother and his, his investment group was, was looking to, to purchase the property, they did have to do research around whether or not, you know, some of these any any of these smaller towns or were historically sundown towns and stuff like that to make sure that there wasn't going to be any issues um 
But uh, and and because you know uh, Tony, the other guy, the guy doing the farming, is you know black guy, long dreadlocks, whatever. So he, you know, these definitely <laughs> definitely a black space. So just just managing all of that is is has got to have been pretty interesting for them. And um, hopefully, I have my brother on the show to talk a little bit more about that. I don't want to I don't want to speak too much from from his experience when when it'd be better if he could share his own. Um, but yeah, so um, one of the pieces of this also was that my birthday fell around that time. So we celebrated my birthday. Uh, we decided to go. I, 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 it was kind of a long story, but I was trying to pick a place that was a little bit scenic, uh, that was you know open at a good time for us and everything. And we wound up going to a restaurant on Lake Lanier, which which was which was really cool. Like it was really nice vibes. The food was pretty good. You know, it was it was cool. It, was, it, was, it had a little, little um, sandy space for for the kids to play and whatnot. So the kiddo went down there and played for a while. Um, so yeah, it was real. It was real cool. It was nice and scenic. And um, you know, got a got a. So we drove to another part of the the lake to catch the sunset. So it was really just a beautiful evening and just a, a really great great space to be in. So when I got back, I was reminded that Lake Lanier is one of those lakes that white people built on top of a formerly black community. Oscarville was once on the land where Lake Lanier is. And Lake Lanier Lake Lanier is actually na- named by a guy who was a Confederate soldier. And, um, you know, he did a lot of other things environmentally, which which was cool. But um yeah, and I was just like so, and then, and then as soon as I think it was, I think it was, um, I can't remember who who told me about it, who meant, who reminded me of this, but as soon as it was mentioned, I was like, oh yeah, Amber Ruffin had that thing about all the how Central Park is built on land that that once was a black community, and, and so many other towns, black towns have that have literally been flooded or demolished for 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 green spaces or lakes. It, it tends to be lakes. A lot of them were, were lakes, but Lake Lanier was one of the ones she focused on, and. It just hit me like as a black person, like you just you just want to have a good time, right? You're in Georgia, you're visiting family, you know, you're celebrating a birthday. You want you want a scenery, you want a lake, you want, you know, whatever. You want some food, some vibes, and little drinks, whatever it is. And, you know, so we sought that out and enjoyed ourselves. Literally enjoyed ourselves. Had a great time, right? And then it's like, oh shit, that's right. Like this part of this part of this land was originally a black community that was literally like stripped away um, partly through violence. I know they had a couple of incidents of like lynchings and stuff. And then also just like official and unofficial terrorism and, and um, just threaten threatening extortion threatenings and stuff like that to just like get folks to leave. And then, you know, 50 years later or whatever, eventually they build a lake out of it. So it just reminds me of Baldwin saying that to be informed and to be a black person is to be in a constant state of rage. And it, and it's really frustrating when you just want to live. You just want to, like I said, you just want to have a nice place to like enjoy life. Um, and that's not, that's also not to overlook the fact that this is all native land. So um, there's just, it's just, it just sucks to have to be reminded of the suffering that has taken place to make certain things what they are now. So the second half of the spring break week, Decided to make a pit stop in Richmond. Again, that's a long drive down to Georgia. So went up to Richmond. I've had a lot of great experiences in Richmond, and I wanted to take the kiddo there for a number of reasons. Um, one of which was because there was there's there's a the Elegba Folklore Society's down there, and they do a great job of facilitating like a historical walk where they they do part of. So Richmond calls it the Slave Trail, but we like to call it the the Trail of Enslaved Africans, um, and. So they do part of that. They do a number of other pit stops along Richmond where Richmond's an an extremely historic city. Uh, Obviously, on the Confederate side of things, Richmond was the capital of the Confederate, uh, uh, the Confederate nation. And they just it's just where a lot of what became racism, white supremacy, uh, slave codes, all those things. A lot of that stuff started in 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 Virginia and Richmond was was the epicenter of where all those laws were being written. So I wanted to take him there. Also on the But Why podcast, the podcast for curious kids by Vermont Public Radio, um, heard a an episode about ice cream, and this episode featured Rabia Kamara, who is the owner and operator of R- Ruby Scoops, which is an ice cream spot. Um, and here in the episode, we just we thoroughly enjoyed it. Whatever. Uh, then I looked up looked up 
uh, Ruby Scoops, and I was like, oh, it's down in Richmond. So I was like, okay, great. So Richmond's about to be the spot because we're going to go do a lot of historical stuff, and we're going to also check up on, on Ruby Scoops, which um, is black-owned, black whatever, black-woman-owned. It, it took me a while to catch that I knew I know Rabia from high school. <laughs> so the familiarity was like, was there. I was like, oh, yeah, we got to go pull up. But I, it, it didn't even hit me until later that I was like, oh, yeah, like I know her. <laughs> so it was super dope to, um, to, to have that as part of the plan, too. Um, so then also uh, because the kid loves, you know, roller coasters and whatnot, we hit Kings Dominion on the way back. Um, and all of this was coordinated in tandem with um, with uh, the kiddo's best friend and his mom who, who met us down there. They got family down there, cousins, friends, whatnot. So so we had this whole agenda set up where we did we did the uh, the tra- the trail of enslaved Africans. And then that day. So, OK, so this is on the Friday. We hit, hit the trail of enslaved Africans. We did about three miles of walking that day. Um, had, had definitely like talked about what it was like. So at the at the starting point, it's where we were taken off of the boat and, and I painted the picture for, for the, for the boys. I was like, you know, after being on a boat for six to eight weeks where, you know, under the, you know, packed like a sardine, like we can't move, can't do anything. Um, then you have to get up and walk right away. And the conditions were terrible. Of course, I told them how they set us up. So uh, I first did this by the way, with, with an organization called urban temple who did a pilgrimage down there. And the Allegro Folklore Society facilitated this experience. So a lot of what I was telling was knowledge that I gained through the Allegro Folklore Society. And so what they described was that basically we were brought off the boat and we had metal shackles along our necks, hands and and, and uh, ankles or wrists and ankles and metal. And I told the boys, I was like, you know, metal, what happens to metal when it when it when it's hot outside? And they said it gets hot. And I'm like, right. So imagine that on your neck wrists and, and ankles. Um, also, sometimes they did this at night and it could be a cold night. So what happens to metal when it's cold? And the, they were like, it gets really, really cold. Very true. So either way, this was a very terrible condition to be to be in. First of all, just being chained like that. The other thing that they did was they put the men in the front of the line, children. And yes, there were children brought over the, on the ships. They brought children as young as 10, 12, 14 um, they were in the middle and women were in the back. And when I went, when I did this with Urban Temple, I realized why they did that. And we, we kind of decode, decoded why they did this. Um, and it was basically because, you know, putting the men in front meant that they couldn't see anything that was happening, couldn't, um, couldn't, you know, certainly couldn't act on anything that, that was happening behind them, but they could hear it. And that was a form of torment in and of itself. Like you could, you could hear it, but you couldn't exactly tell what was going on. The children were placed in front of the women so that the women could see whatever suffering the children were going under, but they themselves were unprotected. Nobody was witnessing their pain, their anguish either. Again, the men were in the front. So there was just everything about what they did was to basically break our humanity, break our spirit and to just, you know, eat, eat away at, at, at our, our, our survival and our, our fiber and everything. Obviously that didn't succeed because we're still here today and we, we, we carry the torch of being black African, all that kind of stuff. But this was just a very obvious deliberate attempt to try to break us. So we poured some libations. We, 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 you know, gave thoughts to the ancestors and things of that nature. And they had a few pillars to kind of show a little bit of the history along the way, which was cool. Um, and, and <laughs> I mean, I, I can be pretty intense in some in situations like that. And I can be, you know, <laughs> a little overbearing, admittedly, I'm working on it, but it was, it wasn't like a somber, sad walk the whole time. Um, the kids had fun. We, at the end of the day, we we're walking in nature and it was, it was fun to just kind of walk and, and have a, a, an outdoor experience, a little, a little, uh, getting a little active and whatnot. I walked along the river. Um, so it was, it was, it was a nice, nice, you know, nice experience. Um, but there were definitely moments of just like, you know, thinking about what this would have been like for our ancestors. Another thing I want to say is that I feel like when it's black stuff, it's just not commemorated well. So this, this trail starts, as I mentioned, right off of the river, the James river. And it is a nice trail, a nice path for maybe the first mile ish. And then it cuts over the street because there's a, there's a bridge on a, a street bridge that goes across the river and gets to um, the main, the kind of the main part of downtown Richmond, which is where the uh, slave auctions would take place and where we were sold basically. And that's where the path basically goes up that, up that way. There were no real safe ways to cross the road. 
And crossing the bridge itself was kind of treacherous because there's like a, a fairly narrow sidewalk. Yes, it's a sidewalk, but like cars are whizzing past at, at least at 40, 50 miles an hour along this bridge. So it was definitely not a cozy setting to to do this walk. I feel like if this was another group of people who suffered, there would be a lot more care to the space, to the walk, to the commemoration, and to the safety of folks going along this walk. I feel like if that were the case, I think I, I like I would do it again just because of what it means. But just I, I would have trouble. I would feel a little resistance to recommend doing it to other people because it's not as safe as I would like it to be. And but that's also maybe the reason to do it, just to experience something that is 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 about us, but isn't necessarily built for us. Like I said, Richmond calls it the slave trail. Right. It's just not a very you can tell black people weren't involved with the creation of this, the naming of it and just the curating of it. So that was part of my takeaway as well. So but anyway, we we safely get across and we get to, you know, one of the places where um, they, they used to hold the auctions and stuff like that. And we did another, you know, kind of moment of silence and, you know, um, did some libations again there to kind of commemorate the ancestors. And at the end of it, you know, I asked the kids, you know, what they took from it. And they had a few good, you know, takeaways. The thing that I really wanted them to take away from it was that your life is going to have hard things in it. But what I want them to what I want them to think about is that no matter what hard thing life is hitting you with right now, our ancestors did this, which was much, much harder. You know, after being in a boat for that long, walking and then enduring actual slavery um, for the generations of our ancestors that did that. I mean, anything you face in life, you can do it because our ancestors did this. Right. So there's a lot of of strength and fortitude grit, determination, all courage, all of those things that are in us by the fact that we're here, we're alive, and our ancestors went through what they went through so that we could be here today. So another thing that we got to do was we did a, a dance class with a Malian dance, uh, dan- a master dancer. And this was also part of the Allegro Folklore Society. They had set this up. This was just on their agenda and it happened to be the week that we were, the weekend that we were going to be there. So this is on the Saturday. Um, and that was a lot of fun. I am not a dancer. I'd rather be the guy drumming. But um, it was it was a lot of fun to kind of learn the dances. And they had, you know, parts where the, the, the kids would go up and dance and they, they would go through. Um, and then the, the men would do it. It was just me and this one other dude. And then the women would go too. So it was a lot of fun. Got a lot, got a little bit of activity going in. So that was that was good on the su- on the Saturday. Um, got some food. And then oh, that was the night of the Javante um, Davis fight too. So that was kind of fun. Um, uh, their their cousin was hosting hosting the fight. Got the fight. And so the kids were playing and the adults were were um, watching the fight, which was pretty cool. Um, and then on Sunday went to Kings Dominion because uh, Kings Dominion is you know a little bit north of Richmond, basically on the way home. So. Um, you know, hit, hit Kings Dominion on the way back. We basically got there like at noon. They closed at eight. Yes, it was a Sunday night. It was a school night. Uh, still had to drive a couple hours to get home, but um, it was a blast. The kids had a great time. Um, they they have a pretty good. They have a great relationship, kind of like an older brother, younger brother relationship. Um, the kiddo's best friends like about a year, about like fifteen months older than them. So it's it just a, it was just a great time. Great vibes, good energy, and and I like the balance. It was like. Obviously, we had some historical stuff, some stuff about black American history that obviously is not always the fun part. Um, we also got to connect with with the African dance piece um, and then just, just straight up enjoyment. Get some ice cream, get, you know, got some good food, did brunch, you know, King's Dominion, whatever, whatever. So like it was it was just a great, great, great weekend and a great whole week, I should say, for spring break. So that that was also dope. So another little minor thing that happened this week that I, I definitely want to speak a little bit about is um, that the the Bucks lost in game five to the, the Miami Heat in the NBA playoffs. And the Bucks were a one seed. The Heat was an eight seed. And I think I think they put a stat up there like this is only like the I don't know, it's only a one, an eight seed has only beaten one seed a handful of times in the last thirty years or so. I don't know. It's it's relatively rare. 
And um, I, there were two post-game comments that I really wanted to, to highlight. One was Jimmy Butler for the Heat, who was being asked, like, oh, what are you going to do to celebrate? Da, 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 da. He's like, I'm going to go play with my daughter. I have, it's been a road trip. I, I miss her. Like, I, I want to I see her, get some ice cream, go to the park, do all the things, you know, whatever, whatever. I love it when athletes in general, but especially black men, just bring us back to what's most important. It's like... Yeah, yeah, yeah. This game's this game's just cool, but like, yeah, I got a I got a baby girl I'm missing, so I'm trying to go chill with her. Like, I love that. Like that, I feel like for, for everybody to hear that, you know, I don't know if the the commentator person was 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 like taken aback by the answer or whatever, but um, but I, but immediately after that, she was like, all right, well, great, thank you, because <laughs> it was basically like, what else are you gonna say to that? Like, go ahead and get get to your family, or whatever. So, um, so that was super cool to see, and then Giannis, he had a really kind of an eloquent response to I guess they had already asked him this they asked him this last year and they asked him this like I guess twice already before this this clip but they basically asked him is this season a failure and he went on this whole piece about how it's there's he says there's there's no failure in sports it's all about the journey and it's about trying to get better every day so um and I and I love I love how he did it because he he pointed to Alex I think it was the the reporter obviously these guys know get to know the reporters over years he was basically like, Alex, did you get a raise? Did you get a promotion? Like, was this a year of failure because you didn't get a promotion or a raise this year? No, of course not. Like, you, you work hard. You're going you're gonna to provide for your family, and you're going to do do the best you can every day. Eventually, you might get that promotion, that raise, whatever. Um, but it might not happen this year. That doesn't mean this year is a failure. It's part of part of the process, part of the growing process. And so he made that point. But he kept he, he apologized twice. He was like, sorry, I didn't mean to, I didn't mean to make it personal. Um so even though, first of all, I need to back up. When he was asked the question, he covered his head with both of his hands and his elbows were on the table. And he just, he just had a very exacerbated, like, oh. like he, it was a sigh. It was a sigh of exhaustion, physical and emotional exhaustion. And just like, he was just exacerbated, right? You could just, you could just tell. And so in moments like that, you can understand somebody like, letting their guard down or losing their cool a little bit or whatever. And I don't even think anything he said was unprofessional or, or, or whatever, but he did talk, he did say Alex by name and he gave an example relative to Alex's own life. And that, but then he twice, he was still, he still had the wherewithal to be like, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to make a personal. And then he brought it back to Jordan who played for, you know, I think he said Jordan played 15 years, was, was a champion six years with the other years failures. No, of course not. Whatever it is. So like, you know, and and then I've you know there's there's been there's clips of Kobe saying the same thing. So, so it's not it's not a new thing, right? I I just loved how Giannis said it and mentioned it, and I think it's it's great for the sports world to hear this because everybody gets so hell bent on like, oh, we're gonna win a championship, we're gonna win this, we we we, and it's like first of all, there's no we because you're not out there actually playing, um, but it's also just like it's not everybody wants to win, obviously, but. You know, there's 30 teams or however many teams there are in any given league. Only one team is going to win it every year. That means there's 29 or 31 losers, quote unquote, if we want to use that term. But I just love Giannis bringing us back to the idea that life is not always about that immediate success, that immediate gratification. Um, I did talk about this with Tony, who was on the Masculinity Podcast back a while back. Um, he said, but you're a four, if you're a one seed and you lose to an eight seed, that is a failure. And I'm like, that's true. Like in terms of this season, was this season as successful as we thought it would be? No, um, especially if you're a one seed, you you expect to be you know in the in the Eastern Conference Finals, if not have a chance at winning the actual NBA championship, of course. But as Giannis pointed out, like they just happened to play some bad basketball that week and in, in the last couple of days, so you're, you're not going to advance. And and during a long season, like you're going to be able to have a couple of bad days and still progress and still have a great year. Um, this is just a bad time for that. Um, and he's like, yeah, but this is this is this is not a failure. We're going to get better. We're going to work harder. We're going to come back next year. We're going to have a chance to win it then. So, no, it's not a failure. We're going to keep on pushing. And and I just I just love that approach. I love like how both Jimmy Butler and Giannis like brought, brought us back to what's important and, and brought us back to a different world, different, different thinking around those things. And, and kind of I think both of those answers kind of cool us off of the hysteria that we have with sports i mean everybody gets so amped up about it but it's just like nah like take a chill pill all these guys got families you know what i mean these people got families and also like it's okay to lose it's okay to lose as long as you work learn from it and get better all right so now i want to talk about mr harry belafonte 
I first read his book, My Song, a few years ago, and it's a big one. And it hit me in so many ways. I, I had known who Harry Belafonte was loosely, but I had no idea how instrumental he was. He's probably one of the, in my, I don't know, he's, in my opinion, he's one of the most influential people of the 20th century, like for sure. And he just, just in the sense of what he did across all the things he was involved in, first and foremost, he was an activist first. And by the way, for, for those who aren't familiar with him, he, he's, he's, um, he's a, He's born in the U.S., but he's he's a kid of immigrants. He's Jamaican, and he was from New York. And he did know didn't, he struggled in school a little bit. He, he did, I don't think he finished high school, um, but he always he, he did see while doing janitor janitor, janitor work. Uh, he got tickets to see a play, and that was his first time exposed to theater and and the arts and music and stuff like that. And he was like, "Oh, that's what I need to be doing." That. And so he constantly was working towards positioning himself to being exposed to that, learning about it. He went to school for it eventually. Um, and and that obviously that became what he did. But as any, you know, musician, artist, creative would tell you that there's obviously periods of struggle, periods of like, you know, not getting paid for what you do. So he was a janitor first. He, he, he did other jobs to kind of pay pay his way while doing that. He also was an activist the entire time. He always had this moral compass around what is important for black people. He also was a, it was a Navy person, too, in World War II. So one of the big experiences that black Americans faced when they were in the military, especially in World War II and coming home, they were just fighting against tyranny, against oppression, against, you know, the attempted annihilation of, the, of Jewish people and others, like, you know, fighting for freedom, fighting for democracy, fighting for all these big ideas. And then they come home and they're still crapped on by the United States of America. And Harry Belafonte talks about a, a man who was a, bl- a black man who was, was taking a bus back down to where, where he was from, I think Alabama or Mississippi. And, um, and white people like gouged his eyes out and like, you know, whatever, like upon returning, cause he wanted to get, you know, to his family, he wanted to get, get the benefits and rights that he, you know, should have, should be getting here in America, here in the United States. So that is the, that's the, the context that's the historical context that that he was set in, and he was, I think I don't know, I don't know exactly the age, but he was like maybe like twenty something, you know, early twenties or maybe even nineteen or so when he was when he met Paul Robeson, and I just bought Paul Robeson's uh, autobiography or biography autobiography as well because I I know about him as well, but I want to read his full thing so I can get a f- more full picture of him. But he was an athlete, he was a he was an actor, singer, whatever. Um, and he was also very tapped into his blackness and activism and what we needed as a people. And although Robeson was already kind of you know towards the ends of his careers when when he met um, Harry Belafonte, he was definitely very much still an activist. And one of the things that he told Harry Belafonte that that stuck with Harry was that uh, for a couple of things. One is that artists are truth tellers, and that they're their most powerful force in the world. And that might rub some folks the wrong way, but it, it really is. Um, especially when we think of COVID, I saw something on Instagram. I was like, you know, when COVID hit and everybody's feeling, however they're feeling about, about the pandemic, about everything, we turn to, you know, creatives, we turn to Netflix, we turn to movies, we turn to music, we turn to TV shows, we turn to things that people have created artwork and other things to like, keep us grounded, keep us motivated, keep us, you know, to wallow with us if we're feeling sad, whatever it is, like we find our feelings through pieces of art and through creative works. And so, you know, that's I think those two things are very true in terms of its, its truth telling and its powerful force. But then the other thing Paul Robson said was that he told Harry to get them to sing your song and then they will want to know who you are. And I think that was a really profound, beautiful thing to say. And then if you look at Harry's career, his album Calypso was the first LP long play album to sell a million copies. Ever. Ever. Like no Duke Ellington, no anything else, no John Philip Sousa, whatever. I don't care. Nobody, nobody's LP ever sold a million copies before Harry Belafonte, Harry Belafonte's Calypso. Now, the history of that Calypso album is very interesting. He is Jamaican 
and he was just looking for stuff that was of the Caribbean of black people to to sing. And he he had already done um, his first album was was uh, Mark Twain and other folklore songs. I, I might be I might not have the exact title of the album, but that's I love that one too. Um, so he he just kind of was always tapping into the black um, vocal spirit and through music. And Calypso was an album of 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 Calypso, obviously, but from from Trinidad and Tobago. So he t- he found songs there and he s- sung them beautifully, obviously. And according, of course, of course, the Banana Boat song "Deo," which is obviously the the one song. If anybody knows a Harry Belafonte song, it's that song. And you know, that was the album that sells a million records in the United States and I think in in the UK. And it was a perfect example of sing your song and then they'll want to know who you are. Now he's not Trini, but he was still Caribbean, whatever he's black, he's black and he represented a very black sound in, in that, in that album. And obviously from there on, everybody wanted to know who he was. So it's just a beautiful example of that. And I cut to like hip hop these days. And I know that there's like a lot of dynamics in hip hop, right? And hip hop very much was us telling our own story and singing our own songs and writing our own poetry, to, speaking about our own lives. But I think by the '90s, and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a millennial, born in the '80s, whatever. So like, by the time I was coming of age, by the time I was like in high school, that you already could see that there were artists that were doing them and artists that were trying to sell. And it's just interesting how, when when given that opportunity to make money, you you might trade in a bit of that sell, sing your song, and then that's when people are are less interested in who you really are. And I think it's just interesting how the music behemoth industry has made that a difficult choice for artists. Um, but but anyway, at least that it, you know when Harry was doing his thing, he had the courage to to sing his stuff and and sing black stuff, sing spiritual spiritually based stuff, and and that's how he got his claim to fame. And that was before he was really in any big big movies. He eventually got movie roles and stuff like that. Um, he he was also a very good. F- <laughs> I guess friend of of Sidney Poitier. He he talked about Sidney Sidney quite a lot in the in the in the book. They definitely had differences of opinion. He criticized Sidney for taking certain roles that he wouldn't take because it wasn't pro black enough, etc. Um, and it was just interesting. Like, was there light skin privilege in his ability to take say no to certain roles? I don't. There's just the book was just fascinating in terms of just all of the 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 intimacy with which he talked about people, um, Dorothy Danridge, and just so many other people that he was involved with. Um, in his career, and, and I'm focusing on the, the the entertainment part of his career first because that's that's I think what a lot of people know about him is is his singing, his acting, and stuff like that. And that that's that's beautiful, and that's and what he did with his work, the pride he took in his work is is, is commendable. And the fact that he had that moral compass of like, hey, I'm only going to do certain roles, I'm only going to do certain things, I'm only going to portray black people, black men in a certain light, um, you know. So that that was a big thing. But as I mentioned activism had always been part of what he was doing he was always an activist even before you ever heard his name and so he always had that compass which which didn't just translate into the roles he took in the songs he sung but also like his his in the streets activism and in the book you get such a a riveting personal depiction of folks like dr king who would kick up his kick up his feet, kick kick off his shoes, kick up his feet, get get a scotch, and just hang out in Harry Belafonte's apartment in New York. And these guys were like two years apart in age, like 24, 26 years old, whatever. And Dr. King's just like, I don't know what's happening. Like, I, this is a lot, and I don't know what to do next. And we gotta figure something out. We gotta get organized. Da, 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 da. Like, there were moments of just genuine humanness that he experienced with some of the most important people in, in that century. And it's just amazing that he was in those in those roles and he, he, he was up to the task. I mean, you know, John F. Kennedy called him and said, hey, I need your endorsement because Jackie Robinson endorsed Nixon. That's another whole topic. I could talk about that on another show. But, you know, he, he wanted another black celebrity to basically endorse him. And, and Harry Belafonte was like, uh, I get what you're, I, I, I'm picking up what you're putting down, but you need to talk to Dr. King. And John Kennedy was like, who? And Harry's like, yeah, that's why I'm not endorsing you. You need to know who Dr. King is. So, you know, it's, and, 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 and Harry Belafonte back then, I think that was 1960 or even before that. No, it had to be 1960. Um, he at that point knew that the Democrats were a little bit more liberal. They were more willing to do what 
was beneficial for black people, but they had their own agenda and they were not for black people. Like, so he describes this meeting that he had with Kennedy. Kennedy came to his apartment and said, Hey, here's what I want to do for black people. Da, 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 da. And Harry's like, yeah, but I can tell you haven't talked to any black people. Um, obviously. And then he put, put him to put him in touch with Dr. King. So, you know, he had, he had that political acumen like early and, and throughout his career, which, which I think was amazing. Um, he also, obviously he made a lot of money doing his, 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 his work with uh, acting and, and, and uh, singing. So he funded a lot of this stuff and he didn't only do it himself. He got like Frank Sinatra and, you know, Sidney Portier and all these others to like, to, to fund various things that were going on in the South and elsewhere. He funded um, parts of the Montgomery bus boycott. He funded, so this is another thing too. He funded like SCLC and Dr. King and their stuff. He also funded SNCC, the student nonviolent coordinating committee who at certain points were, like very opposed to Dr. King. They thought Dr. King was an Uncle Tom. They thought he was too soft and whatever. And eventually the SNCC got rid of, they, they started just going by SNCC and got rid of the nonviolent piece because they were like, well, wait a minute, we might, we might not be nonviolent anymore. And Harry continued to support both, like at, what you could see as both sides of, of, of black activism in terms of like, hey, are we going to go with the more nonviolent integrationist type work? Are we going to go with SNCC, who's a little bit more radical? Um, stuff like that. Like he was just, he was just, down for the cause and down to just like support folks doing work and letting it, letting all the things happen and, and, and hopes that thing that positive results would come. And, and I think, you know, the, the, the results are his, are, are in history. Um, but I also think he was, he was aware that the successes that were made were not really full comprehensive successes and and his activism later in life he 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 talks about this i'm going to i'm going to link to a video he recorded i think in 2005 where they had a, a was it 2005 might have been a little later than that cuz uh, hillary clinton a younger hillary clinton and a younger barack obama was sitting to his his left and right and he basically lambasted the entire uh, democratic party and you know, basically said that we need a second party in this country because the Republicans and Democrats are basically of the same party of, of the rich and wealthy. And we need a par, a, par, uh, a party that will represent the true, the true interests of the people. The starting point of this, this convention was on C-SPAN. It was basically about poverty. So that's why he was, he, he took that angle, but he, he mentioned how Dr. King said, I've integrated this into a burning house. I hope that, I hope that line is as famous as his quotes from, from the, uh, I have a dream speech, but Anyway, he just had a Harry Belafonte just had an amazing knack for history and just movement and action and purpose-driven work. I can't say enough about how much impact he had in real history throughout the ni- throughout the 20th century, but even just on me reading it like now, you know, a few years ago, um just just having an appreciation for for what he did and the intimacy with which he knew certain key people and the amount of amount of movement he was able to do um you know it's it just amazing i mean he also was huge in terms of helping out other artists like he also helped miriam makeba become a world known singer uh, she was from south africa of course he was working on anti anti apartheid work um and helped you know really elevated Miriam McCabe she, I think he he coordinated her getting to the United States for the first time and had her open for him throughout you know years and uh so he he just constantly was looking for people to to you know uplift and bridge that bridge the pan african gaps um and 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 bring the diaspora together um so he he just he just he just constantly was doing so much consistently throughout the entire entirety of his career um it's really really commendable even in the later years, I already mentioned the one thing he did on C-SPAN, but in his later years, I mean, he talked about, he, he said George Bush was the greatest terrorist in the world. And this was right when the war in Iraq was, was being talked about and all that kind of stuff. Um, he, he, he made these comments and he got a lot of flack for it, but it's also like, he, he think, think about what he was trying to say. He was trying to say that George Bush and others were causing terrorism, not only in Iraq and other places, but he, he talked about how, you know, Food shortages in the United States are, are, are is terrorism. Police police uh, treatment of black people is terrorism. So there's he kind of went down a litany of other examples of how the United States system is a terrorist system, just in how we treat our own people, especially black people, brown people, et cetera, native people, et cetera. So you know, anyway, he he just had a very amazing life. His impact was amazing, and I really very much appreciate who he was. I know he wasn't perfect. Uh, he definitely, 
was a man. <laughs> Part of what hit me in in reading the autobiography is that he he, he kind of like was eager to kind of pat himself on his back, and he he like was was not shame, not ashamed or not uh, uh, not not he didn't hesitate to brag a bit. And you know it's it's fine. I mean that, that's you know in a in a world where they try to take our accomplishments away, it's like all right, go ahead, bro. Like you know, do your thing. Like cheer yourself on you know that was something that, that that wasn't exactly my taste but you know it was also it, you know it's also fine um and also he he did like take some shots at people personally like sydney i think he definitely took some shots at sydney potier um and and that plays out in their relationship i mean they're they're they were they loved each other and they also hated each other from time to time and so there was a lot of history there um but yeah so you know I, I think the the overall point though is that Harry Belafonte wasn't perfect, but he was a a person, right? He was a principled person, and he had talent, and he used that talent to educate and educate folks about himself, black people, black culture, and he used that money to turn around and help us get what we needed, um, at, at least as the as best as we could, and that that was just a huge huge takeaway for me. And it also linked to this book that I read recently called The Heritage. And it The Heritage is basically the idea that black athletes have this knowing responsibility to be involved with the community, to be involved with black issues. And Paul Robeson was was kind of the the godfather of the of the heritage. Uh, he was one of the first big black uh um athletes and his he took a very active role as I, as I was mentioning earlier um, in making sure that black entertainers and athletes were tapped in and making moves. By the way, I didn't mention this earlier, but, uh, but, but Paul Robeson was basically blacklisted by the United States government. They stripped his passport. They basically like refused to, they, they, they said that anybody who hired him to do anything would like not get any government money or would be, you know, whatever they called him a communist. And, and he just was blacklisted from anything and was, basically not allowed to make money and whatever, whatever. So he, he bore a personal cost to his activism and his, his pro blackness and his, and his work and his positions. And, you know, people like Jackie Robinson, people throughout history, um, Will Chamberlain, Kareem Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, Muhammad Ali and others like there's so many that have done that. But the book, the heritage talks about how that has basically gone away, especially in the last, you know, 30 years he talks about how oj was the first one to basically try to position himself as like hey i'm a money guy like you, you can pay me to do advertisements i'm not black i'm oj like kind of thing and then um and then michael jordan took, just took that to the next level and even to this day most athletes are money first and then politics second and then um so so kind of putting putting having that book in the back of my mind you know just just on the eve of when Harry Belafonte passed away and transitioned, um, it, it kind of showed me how connected both being an athlete and being an, a musician are. Um, Paul Robeson was literally both, and he he kind of started this heritage idea um, in both industries, so to speak, with with respect to Harry, Jackie Robinson, and others. And yeah, no, I think it's just it's just really it's really important to to be rooted and principled in us. And, and who we are as individuals and then who we are connected to in our communities and how our, our work impacts that community um, from, from just an optic standpoint, but also from an, a, a tangible boots on the ground. So not everything you need to do needs to be out in front. Let me, let me make that clear. I think a lot of what Harry did was like under the radar. Like he, he was sending money to things. He was coordinating money for folks. I don't think people knew. I don't think that was in the news. Um, but he, he, but at the end of the day, he was, he was doing that work. So anyway, I, I think that's just a good reminder for me and for all of us to, to think about our work as, as, as being principled and being aligned with who we are, what we believe and, and all of this, that's something I struggled with my whole life. Like I, you know, I was an engineer. I, I worked for corporations before, even though my politics were, you know, not exactly pro capitalism, not exactly pro the whole corporate behemoth and whatnot. And, and so that's just something I struggle with, you know, just in terms of like making money, surviving in this system, surviving in this country, um, but also like staying rooted in your humanity, staying rooted in what you believe to be true and trying to make the world better, um, you know, for the next generation and, and, and the generations beyond that and for the environment itself. All right, y'all. 
that's the show. The song I'm rocking to is from Harry Belafonte's first album from 1954, Mark Twain and Other Folk Favorites. The song is Kalenda Rock, Morning Song. This is a song that it just hits me, hit me so hard when I first, when I originally heard it. I actually sampled it, made a beat off of it. Um, but I think it's a, it's an appropriate song because it's it's a morning song and we're, we're we're mourning his passing, his transition. But I also think it's it's a beautiful song to just to celebrate him and to celebrate his life. And uh, yeah, so this this is the song I rock, I'm rocking to. I, I was listening to Calypso and and the Mark Twain album um, a bit recently, and uh, just just kind of soaking myself into his into his spirit, his voice, and. Uh, I truly think that his his activism, his his passion will continue to live on through all the people he's touched. Rest in peace, rest in power, Harry Belafonte. All right, y'all, that's the show. I appreciate you listening. As always, you can get at me on Instagram at realdadult. That's R-E-A-L-D-A-D-U-L-T. You can let me know what you think about this show or any prior shows. You can also let me know if you have any ideas for future shows. I hope to catch you here next time. Until then, be safe, be well, peace. Peace.